0: So 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 50. We're going to be there for um, just a, a brief second here in a bit. But we're going to get into other passages today. Because we are going to be doing a topical study. We're doing a topical study on end times. And I like looking at end times. But when you look at end times, typically it is just that. It's a topical study. And if you're visiting with us today, you know... all right, you know that we try to typically, historically, we try to do verse by verse study. Why? Because it helps to give you a proper methodology for study. It gives you a good mindset, and it really keeps you from taking things out of context. You know, you go somewhere, and I hear this all the time, you know, like where people take passages out of context. And, you know, Where two or three are gathered together gets used all the time in prayer meetings. How many times do you hear that? Well, that passage is from Matthew 18. It's been easily picked up in all kinds of topical studies when... It gets applied to prayer meetings, but it's not a prayer meeting passage. It's a passage all about church discipline. When all of a sudden we're confronting somebody, two or three of us are agreeing so that we don't have a bias, so that we don't all of a sudden manipulate someone, and we don't all of a sudden um, come just with our view that it's two or three of us are gathered together, and we're all working to bring about the restoration of this believer. So, you know... Topical studies you have to watch, and I have spent time going through these different reasons about why we believe the rapture occurs before the tribulation because I'm trying to also show you a almost verse by verse kind of like study when we go through the different passages, even though it's not as detailed as I would like. So, all that to say is, guess what? We're doing a topical study today, (laughs) okay? And um, there are going to be more verses than usual, so you got to pay attention. And I encourage you to look the verses up. I encourage you to uh, have your own Bibles. I know that some of you have those electronic Bibles, but always my preference is the paper Bible. I just think, you know, um, it allows you to see it better. I don't know. But if you have an electronic Bible, at least look it up, okay? Because this is a Bible church, Hammond's Bible Church, right? And so well, we've been studying end times over my last two sermons. I thought Juan did a great job. Thank you, Carl, for praying for him. We need to keep praying for, for Juan while he's in Mexico. But we started looking at this doctrine of the rapture. And if you haven't been with us, when you look at this word rapture, it comes from the 1 Thessalonians 4 passage about being seized. It is from the Bible, even though the word rapture itself isn't in our english translation the concept of being seized is and it's the belief where jesus christ is coming back for his church he's gonna meet us in the air he's gonna seize us he's gonna take us back to heaven and so this is gonna happen where it's gonna occur we believe before the seven-year tribulation and for those of you who experience this for those who do experience this This is a great passage of hope, a great thought of hope. Because guess what? You don't have to experience death. And remember this explicitly. No death for those who go through the rapture. No death. And when we talk about death, it's really not something that you joke about. Death is no joke. But as I was thinking about our message this week, my message this week, I was thinking about how many people use death as a subject of their comedy. Uh, I think there's a lot of comedians that make a lot of fun out of death. And I know one famous one, a writer, director, is Woody Allen, and I know a lot of you don't like his ethics, and I'm with you, I get that. But Woody Allen was somebody that really wrote about and, and, and used death in a lot of his books and his, a lot of his movies. And I was thinking about some of his jokes about death, and it gives us, like, insight. ...about even how the world looks at death. So here's one of his famous lines. He says, my relationship with death remains the same. It means it always stays the same. And what is it? I'm strongly against it. Ha <laughs> ha. Okay. Well, all right. But the reason I, I look at that insight is... And ...of course he's against it. Because we just read a passage in our scripture reading... ...about how death gets swallowed up in victory. Because death is looked at as an enemy, Right? And death is something that you should all fear. And Woody Allen should fear it, too. And I think he does. He, in speaking about dying, says, I do not believe in the afterlife, although I'm bringing a change of underwear just in case. And I I laugh at that one, too, okay? Because there's the thought unbelievers can sometimes deny that there's there's a heaven and a hell and all that stuff. But We know because of Romans chapter one that there is always an awareness of eternity in them and that God has put it inside them and they're just denying it. And so I think they covered up with jokes. And then last one, he says, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't wanna be there when it happens. Da, 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 all right? And, And that's true for everyone. They don't wanna die. Nobody really wants to die. And so I remember reading his book, Without Feathers. I don't know if any of you ever read Woody Allen's book, Without Feathers. I read that back when I was a junior in high school. Um, And he has a whole chapter, junior, senior, he has a whole chapter about dealing with the angel of death. And I thought it was funny back then, but now that I am a believer and I'm understanding more about life and death matters, I recognize jokes about death are just the ways world, the way the world tries to cope with the fact that they're going to have to face death. And the reality of it is, is it is something that you should recognize as an enemy. Everybody in this room is gonna face that is facing death. That's really a somber thought on a gloomy Sunday morning. But the only thing to beat death is the belief in Jesus Christ, and that's why I want you all to constantly challenge yourself. The Bible talks about checking yourself. Do you know that you're born again? Do you read your Bible? Do you live a transformed life? Being somebody that lives an obedient life, being someone that lives a life of evangelism, lives a life of of loving other people, that doesn't save you, but it is indicative of the fact of the life that's been transformed. I just wanted you to make sure you're transformed, that you put your faith in Jesus Christ. You believe that he was God and man who died on that cross and paid the penalty for sins. And the Bible says that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. I, I think I talked to two people this week who profess to be believers. And when I said, well, do you believe in Jesus? And they said, absolutely, I believe in Jesus. And I said, but could I believe in Muhammad? And they said, absolutely, if that's what you want. No, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Exclusivity, nobody comes to the Father. Nobody comes to the Father Either Jesus is God or he's not. Muhammad, Confucius, Buddha, none of those people are gods. And when you believe in Jesus Christ, you understand that. And when you understand the problem of your sin, that we all sin and we all fall short of the glory of God, as the Bible says, and the Bible talks about the fact that we're like worms in, before God, and we cannot change the color of our spots. Like a leopard can is it a leopard? No, no, it's not a leopard. Who has the spots? Anyway, somebody has spots. You can't change your spots. The idea is is that nobody can change themselves. Only God can change you. This is why you need to believe in Jesus and have that transformation. The Bible says unless a man is born again, he doesn't go into the kingdom of God. Are you born again? Have you had that life transformation? That's the only way to ultimately beat death But there is a little twist and there is a little interesting concept in the Bible is that there are people who are exempted. There are people who are exempted about they don't have to die. And I think that's really interesting. Have you ever thought about that? There are two people in the Bible, Enoch and Elijah, that neither of them actually died. And if the rapture occurs while you are alive, perhaps in the next hour you will join the list of people who never had to die. I don't know if you ever thought about that. You know, it be really cool. You ever go and you play Bible trivia? You play Bible trivia, and all of a sudden there's a question that says, who are the people who never died and went straight to heaven? And you would say, oh, I know, Elijah, or Enoch, right? But wouldn't it be cool then, all of a sudden, you're playing Bible trivia someday in heaven. And it's like, who are the people who didn't go to heaven? Who didn't have to, I mean, who, didn't, who are the people who didn't have to die? And you could raise your hand. You could add your name to that Bible trivia game. I don't know if you ever thought of that. But look at verse, verse um, 50, um, 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. We will not all die. But we'll be changed. That sleep we've already studied, and I encourage you, if you haven't been here, that you would go back and listen to the podcast from like, or the, even the, the the YouTube video of all sleep. You um, that study we did on that. You're, you're it means to die. We're not all going to die, but we will be changed in the moment, in an atom of time, in the twinkling of an eye. It's going to happen, and so I know that death is painful, right? Death is something that's painful, and this is why people always pray in their sleep. Now I lay me down to sleep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. I don't know how many of you were told that, but I remember my grandmother. um, I grew up in a home where my parents, we really never went to church but a few times. But every time I went to my grandmother's and I slept over, I could remember being five and six and seven and eight, and she'd put me to bed, and she would always pray that prayer. and And it always had that in that back of my mind. You know, how wonderful it would be. Okay, if you die, you know, if you could die in your sleep and you don't have to find, you don't have to go through pain, right? So that... Who wants to go through that experience? But I got to tell you, I've been thinking a lot about the rapture. I do think about the rapture from the standpoint is I don't know what the experience is actually going to be like. I don't know if it's going to be like a roller coaster ride, and and that's something I got to sk- tell you. I really want to go on the uh, go through the rapture, but I hate roller coasters, and 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 and, and so um, when I was a college, the last when I was a college pastor, the last roller coaster I had been on is like 25 years ago. We took the kids. To a church down in Kansas City, and they took me to—I think it was a Great America—and I, they, they oh, told me you got to go on the roller coaster, you got to go on, the and it was one of those double loop ones, and 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 I, got, I was terrified, and I looked at the floor the whole time, I couldn't look up, I was just absolutely scared, and I'll, I'll, how where's this all going? Is I keep thinking, is the rapture going to make me have that funny feeling in the stomach? I hope not, <laughs> okay, but when the rapture occurs. We're going to go through it. It's going to be fast. It's going to be quick. Look at that line. I'm not making this up. It is an atom of time, the twinkling of an eye. Some of you just blinked that fast, that fast. So maybe my stomach won't be able to feel the jitters. But um, it can happen any time. And God has wanted his church ready, and we're going to talk about that in future studies. But if, if you turn back in your Bibles at this point to Isaiah chapter 40, and this is all like preliminary material, one of the things i keep trying to get you to understand is when we talk about this rapture and we talk about it it fits with the theology of something that is known it is in 1st corinthians 15 where we just were spoken of as a mystery and a lot of times people think when you talk about the rapture you're talking about something that's uh, that's unknown no a mystery and this is where good bible study comes in it was something that was one time unknown but now is known just like the church was once unknown and is now known but when God does things, and I think even things like with the rapture, he makes things well known so that when people are going to hear about it, there, it will be something that I think they're going to have to know God really did it. The lie might come out that aliens took us or something like that, but look, here's a similar situation. You know, Sometimes you think, you know, Jesus born in little town of Bethlehem, and we sing those songs. We think of, of the obscurity of it, but really, the being born in Bethlehem, being born in the manger, is more the humility of it, but not the obscurity of it. Because when Jesus came on the scene, and every, you know, you had the angels telling the shepherds, "Go tell everybody!" Right? What do you mean? You know, what are we dealing with? Obscurity? Or are we talking about humility? It was more humility. And when when we come to Isaiah 40, you say, well, how does, what does this have to do with the rapture? What this has to do with is the first coming of Jesus. Isaiah chapter 40 in context is that Isaiah is a prophet who writes from 726 B.C. to about 680 B.C. He is writing before the Assyrian captivity which will occur at 722 B.C. He is telling Israel, you're going to get yours, you're going to get yours. And and as he writes his book, they do get theirs. But then he tells the remaining two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, you're going to get in trouble too. And when you come finally to the end of Isaiah 39, he has piled on and he's piled on. And it seems like there's no hope. But now, when you turn to Isaiah chapter 40, from 40 to 66... He is bringing messages about hope, and he's bringing messages about the coming Messiah. And look at Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort, oh comfort, my people, says your God. Comfort, because I've just spanked you so hard that you thought you would never recover, all right? And he says, speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand What? Double for all her sins. And that's something that always terrifies me because the more you know, the more you are going to be held accountable for. That's why it's double for all your sins. Okay? So double for all your sins. So there is a biblical concept of the more you know, the more you're responsible for So look at verse 3. This is what you need to start. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. You can read Matthew. You can read Mark. Guess what? That's fulfilled by John the Baptist. What's John the Baptist doing? He's out in the wilderness, and they talk about large crowds coming, and he's yelling, the Messiah is here. God's here. I'm fulfilling this passage. He was telling people, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, the Messiah. And when he finally baptizes him in John 1, he's here, he's here. So the idea was it wasn't supposed to be missed. All of that to say is I don't want you to miss the concept of the, the rapture. I think the world knows that it's here, and the more you even talk about it, it helps uh, it helps. Get the world ready for when it happens so that they can come to faith. All right, so go back. Well, I'll tell you what. Turn your Bibles to John 14. Ironically, Mr. Hale almost got us in trouble. As <laughs> this is my first passage as I was going to take you to. But if you're visiting, if you see on your sermon notes, we've been talking about is there really a rapture? So what I've been trying to do, the way I've organized this topical study, this topical study... As I said at the beginning, is that we're doing a topical study because I want to pull all these passages together. I want to bring them in context. And I thought the easy way to do it was to organize it around four questions. Number one, is there really a rapture? And the answer is that it's a fact. And it's so interesting. I was talking to a person this week, and they and I was telling them about the rapture. A person who goes to another church, and I was, and they said, "Oh, you you can have your your you know your your charts and all that." I'm not sure. I don't even know if there is a rapture. And and immediately I said, "Time out." <laughs> How to win friends and influence friends, and in, and something like that in in conversations. I said, "Wait a second. Wait a second. Are you really saying you don't think there's a rapture? Because if you really don't think there's a rapture, then you really don't understand Scripture because Scripture is clear. There is a rapture. These passages, 1 Corinthians 15 talks about it's a mystery experience, and 1 Thessalonians 4, it's a meeting in the air. The the issue is not is there one, but more so when. And, And so when I tried to pin this person down, they said, oh, yeah, that's what I mean. But that was sloppy talking, and we don't like sloppy talking. We want to be clear there is a rapture, it is a fact. But when is it? Well, we said that it is clearly before. It is before, whoops, let me go back. It is before the, 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 the tribulation, okay? And here's this timeline that we had, okay? And so we believe it's before. Why do we believe it's before? Because we have said, if you're looking at your notes, that it is a fulfillment of the promise, okay? The fulfillment of the promise that we're not going to have to go through wrath. And again, I would say go back to those podcasts, those YouTube videos, because we went into a lot of detail there. And then we said there has to be a gap of time between the rapture and the start of the millennium. There has to be a gap of time. And so this is not the gap theory of genesis but the gap theory that people have to have a gap of time to get saved to go into the thousand year reign that's explicit in revelation chapter 20 so that they can have bodies that will experience death isaiah 65 so that's why we put all this up here so not going to belabor that anymore other than to say those were the first two reasons. But those aren't the only reasons. Today we come to the third one. And you want to fill in because only a rapture fits with the wedding imagery of these key passages. John 14, 1-3. So you're in John 14, It is the last night of Christ's life. It's a section of Scripture which you have a red-lettered Bible. You go from chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. You've got more dialogue from Jesus than in any other place. He knows he's going to die the next day. He's trying to comfort, and he says this in verses 1 to 3. Do not let your heart be troubled, and I believe that's a command. And then he says, believe in God, and I believe that's a command. And then he says, believe in God, believe also in me. All right? In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would not. I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And what we have here is a, a promise and, of venue. V-E-N-U-E, okay? And, and what I want you to understand and I want you to grasp is that God here is ta- telling us something about a place that he's taking us. He's taking us to a place, a venue, all right? But what is interesting in this is that the venue fits with what is called the Jewish wedding imagery, all right? The Jewish wedding imagery. And, and so what... What God has done here, and you say, He has given us, I believe, something that conservative, evangelical, fundamental, preach the um, people who use a grammatical, historical method of interpretation say, This is dealing with the rapture. And let me show you why, okay? What, what this does is, I believe, it takes us to show us how God is going to take us to the Father's house. All right? He's going to take us to the Father's house. And why is that important? Why is that critical? So there's nothing mysterious here. You know, you all read it. You've heard it. But why is that so important? So it's because it deals with the wedding imagery. Let me just tell you the big picture, and then I'm going to show you this. If you were... If you were in the times of Jesus, this is the methodology they used for their weddings. A young man would see a young girl, and he would say, boy, I'd like to marry her. Or maybe his parents would say, hey, there's a young girl. I like her family. Let's hook you two together. Somehow, some way, an arrangement would be made. Now, what, what would happen is... At that time, the father and the son would go to that girl's home and they would pay a price, the dowry, a redemption price. And they would basically enter into what is called an agreement. My son is going to marry your daughter. And that would be a betrothal period. At that point, that's very similar to our engagement, only it's different. Because in our culture, somebody gets an engagement ring somebody gets an engagement ring, it's not the same thing as being officially married. For the Jews, a betrothal was they were officially getting married. I don't know about you, but I've lived long enough to see two girls, two girls, not one, two, that have had engagement rings. Okay, engagement rings. And some boy, another boy said, hey, you're really pretty. I like you. Forget that guy that you're going to marry. Give me your, give your ring back. Marry me and they've done it, okay? When those girls have done that, when those girls have done that, they did not go to court and file for a divorce, right? Let's be clear on that. They didn't. They just gave the ring back, and they married somebody else. Ironically, both of those couples have been married a long time that I know, all right? So then, now we're betrothed. So we're betrothed, the agreement's been made. We get married the next day. No, we wait up to a year. Why? Because in this culture, it's very important that we check out the purity of the girl. I don't know why you guys get away with it, but the girl, we're going to make sure that the bride is pure. Because if all of a sudden somebody gets pregnant and I do not have a relationship with you, then all of a sudden we have a problem. We make it through that one-year period. At the end of that time, it's time for the big ceremony. We know that it's around a certain time, but you don't know exactly when. The bride, has to, the bride has to get ready because the boy has been for the past year doing what? He's been getting his house ready. And I was talking to Austin. Austin and I got to go to Egypt this past, in the past year. And when we went through the entire countryside of, of, of Cairo, there many, many homes were like the entire upper floor was half finished. Why? Because they said that when the boys in that home would get married, guess what? Then they would build on. And that's where the family would live, on that next floor. So the, fa- the son is back at his father's house, fixing up the house ready to come. The, then when it's the time for the wedding, you say, well, it's going to be sometime, let's say, in, in August. And so the bridesmaids are all getting ready. The bride is getting ready, but they've got to be on alert. And when the when all of a sudden there's a trumpet or there's an announcement, the groom comes marching for the bride. He comes and he gets her, and, and she has to be ready, and he marches her back to where? His father's house. Now, at this point, they We'll put it this way. They consummate the marriage. It goes on for an entire, this period goes on for an entire week. They have a private ceremony at the father's house. And at the end of that week, guess what they have? That's when they have the wedding supper. Now, we have a wedding. We have a ceremony. We have, we have right after the ceremony, we have the wedding party. They just do it differently, Okay. And so that's how it goes. You say, "Well, Mike, is this really scriptural? Is this really in the Bible?" And what I want to show you is how this, this, this cultural, this cultural aspect, has been brought into the Bible in many passages, and you may not have picked it up. So at this point, I want you to turn over to Second Thessalon- Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. The Apostle Paul, in context, is is very concerned about the church, that it's not a very faithful church, and he wants the church at Corinth to get their act together because they've been going to and listening to false teachers. So he says this, I wish that you would, in verse 1, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 1, I wish that you would bear with me a little foolishness, Okay, I'm going to play like a little game with you, sort of like. But indeed, you are bearing with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband in that to Christ I may present you as a pure virgin. What do you mean? What are you talking about? Well, because when we, what Paul is talking about, he's bringing the very Jewish wedding theology into this, is that when we became believers, Christ is the husband as you know, passages in the New Testament talk about the church as the bride. And, 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 and here he's talking about the engagement period, that we are betrothed. And that he wants to see that we're faithful to our future groom. We are betrothed. And I think it's interesting, and I don't think it's, it, it, it is wrong to force this on this. But just as a side note, the theology of once saved, always saved. Really comes into it in the sense that we are in a relationship, we are in a betrothal, we are in essence married to Jesus Christ. We just have to wait for the ceremony. We're not gonna lose that, we're not gonna lose that at all. So, with that mindset, go back to Matthew chapter one. Why Matthew chapter one? Because it comes back to the birth of Jesus Christ. And remember when Jesus Christ is born in Matthew chapter 1, we get the genealogy of Jesus in the first half of the chapter. But then when the story gets to begin told of actually how he was born, we are told two things that you might have missed in verses 18 and 19. The story goes like this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed, wait, betrothed, they were in this legal one-year waiting period. Joseph is waiting to see what kind of girl Mary is. So they're betrothed to Mary, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Guess what? I want my ring back. No, you've got to go now and get what? You've got to go get divorced. Look, verse 19. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. And we studied this, the idea of plan to send her away is that he was planning to, in essence, divorce her, and he was going to do it secretly because he didn't want to embarrass her. That's what made him righteous in the sense he was giving grace. Guess what? Grace is righteousness. Great aspect here. All right, so he was going to give her grace. Now, at this point, at this point, all right, so you've got the idea of we're going through this betrothal period. Turn in your Bible, same book, Matthew chapter 25, a passage that sometimes is inc- incorrectly alluded to the rapture. This is not an end, a rapture passage. This is an end times, a- end of um, tribulation passage, all right, Matthew chapter 25, but using the imagery of the bridesmaids, the ten virgins, you're given this story. So remember, the bride has been told, hey, it's in August. Get ready. You're going to get married. The the ceremony, you've been waiting a whole year. Get ready. Get your bridesmaids ready. There's been lots of bridesmaids movies lately. I don't know why a lot of people, okay. So the kingdom of heaven will be compared to 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Wait a second. We're not, this isn't Muslim. This isn't one man gets 70 virgins. The, the the virgins there are in essence bridesmaids. All right. They are sometimes the word virgin can be young women. It's like and you typically, you know, you have these young women who are bridesmaids. So the focus is on the bride. But at this point right? We're looking at the bridesmaids and what they're doing. So you get the story. Five of them were, were, were foolish and five were prudent. And when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. And the prudent took the oil in the flask along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delayed because he should have been coming, we, we, we thought it was around this time. We're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting. Aren't we waiting for Jesus? Okay, but th- this is also in the tribulation. They're waiting for Jesus. And while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout. Behold, the bridegroom come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. Then The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and for you. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went within him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later, the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. But be on the alert, then, you do not know the day or the hour, okay? All right? So, day or the hour, I, I believe this is the end of the tribulation. Even then, they don't know exactly when it's going to occur. But the imagery that I'm trying to get you to understand is the Jewish wedding. How the bridegroom came at an, a time, and the bridesmaids and the bride had to be ready. All right? But th- this is, I believe, talking for Israel. Just trying to get you to get the in- imagery. Now turn your Bibles to Revelation 19. Revelation 19. So if we, if, if we understand how this is, in- this is all worked out, how we've all understood that... I get the imagery there. Whoops, whoops. On here, we've been taken to the Father's house. All right? So if the church has been waiting, the bride, we've been trothed, we're we're taken to the Father's house. You were taken to the house for one week. And we're not going to do this study right now, but the tribulation in the book of Daniel is for one week, ironically. A little play on words there. At the end of the tribulation... The church has been in heaven. It's consummated the marriage with Jesus. It's had the ceremony. And when you come to verse 7 of Revelation 19, the tribulation, the seven years of judgment are over. And it says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lord has come. Not like, and this is where, again, good Bible study makes a difference. The idea of has come is the idea of it's here. It, like, it, it, it has been here. It, it's, it's, it's something we're already dealing with. Because the focus is at this point not on a marriage ceremony, but on a marriage supper. So he says, the, the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. It was for her to clothe herself in linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints, then he said to you, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of, of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, Do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours. And, 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 and basically, um, the, regarding those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Verse 11, And I saw heaven open up, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And... Verse 13, he's his clothed with a ro- robe dipped in blood. Verse 14, his armies, which are in heaven, come with him. From verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword. Um, verse 16, and on his robe is king of kings, lord of lords. Verse 17, I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out, saying to all the birds and flying in heaven, come, assemble for what? The great supper of God. This is the wedding supper, people. And as I was telling somebody this week, this is not the most appetizing. You know, some people get taco bars at their wedding. Some people get some really fancy steaks at their wedding. Verse 18, this is what... So that you may eat the flesh of the kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of of all men, both free men and slaves and great men. Why I want you to explicitly understand that is because I told you, and this is how critical it goes back to the third, that previous reason that at the end of the tribulation, everyone that's an unbeliever dies. Everyone at the the end of the tribulation dies. It's a horrible death and it's a horrible way to treat their body, but the majority of people will have their bodies eaten by the birds of the air. It's gross, right? So I saw the beast and the king and, and, and the earth and the armies assembled to make war against them, saying, um, who sat on the, ho- on the horse and, and against his army. So w- what we're trying to get at here is the rapture fits with the wedding imagery because what happens is Jesus Christ comes back for us, the groom, who we've already been betrothed, and he takes us to heaven. We're with him for that one week The wedding is, in essence, consummated at the end of the tribulation. Now we have the wedding supper. And so, believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. However that word rooms, mansions, but God is saying, I go to, what what did Jesus say? I go to prepare a place for you. What do you mean prepare a place for us? It, 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 It fits with the Jewish wedding imagery. And here's the thing too, when you jump over to chapter 21, when we talk about venue, one of the things that's often missed, and why, why it's important to study in this in context, is when you talk to unbelievers about where are you going to spend he- eternity, it's critical you remind people. We talk about heaven, and, and they talk about oh, you're going to just be floating on clouds and you're going to be playing harps and stuff like that, floating on clouds, just singing all day. Listen, people, anybody that thinks that hasn't studied the Bible. We are going to have bodies just like this. We're going to have a world just like this. And where we're going to spend eternity is God brings heaven to earth and we spend eternity on earth. That's why when he says, I take you to heaven, you say, wait a second, okay, well, that's the only time we're really in heaven. That's the only time the church is really in heaven. Because if you look at Revelation 21, 1 to 4, it says, "...then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband." And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is what? Among men. And and he will dwell among them. Where? On earth. We're gonna he's gonna dwell on earth. And so and we shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And here's the great verse we all love. Verse 4, he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there'll long, no longer be any death, and there's no longer gonna be any mourning. And then you go through this and and this entire section. All of chapter 1 through the beginning of chapter 22. You look at verse 22 of chapter 21. I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of the God has illumined it. And its lamp is the Lamb. And the nations will walk by its light. What do you say? Wait a second. I thought we were going to heaven. We're all going to float. We're all going to be the same. Guess what, people? Nations are still in heaven. Because it, it's a world and it's a, it's, it's a populace and I think everything that God wanted to do with Adam and Eve is gonna be done, okay? We're gonna start, so much as we, we can postulate about really what's gonna happen but, and the, you take these little hints, there are nations and, and so the nations are gonna come into it and he goes, nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it but those whose names are written in the book of life. So how critical it is that we understand when Jesus says in John 14, I take you to my father's house, you say, wait a second, why are you doing that? Because you know, I, I, we're going to heaven? Well, I thought, you know, how does this fit in with end times? How does this fit in with the entire, the entire plan? Well, I believe it's the venue that is giving us the hint that John 14 is talking about the rapture and the wedding imagery. And so with all of that said, all of that for you to understand, look, I want you to grasp the timing of the rapture is before the tribulation because I believe we're going to go to our father's house, and it fits. And, And so I'm hoping to escape death. I sure hope the rapture occurs this day. If it doesn't occur this day, maybe this week, so that when we come back, if we were going to come back next week, we, we wouldn't be here. So if we're here next week, look, I've said it at the beginning of this sermon, I say it now death is no joke. And I do, wanna, I do want Jesus Christ to come back. I don't want to experience death. But if I have to, I have to because I'm ready because I know Jesus. And that's what my hope is for all of you. The Bible says death brings judgment. And, and, and if you die in your sleep, how wonderful that you don't have to even experience that aspect of judgment because it, it's part of judgment that we have to experience some pain in death because death is painful. But if you repent and turn to Jesus and you know you're born again, you escape it. I've been trying to get you to be more on edge by doing this study, to be more aware that end times are, are being played out as we're getting, obviously every day is closer I did tell you to put together that rapture box. Mike Phipps had recommended he, that concept. I really liked it. I told you I had that little um, pamphlet, and I went out and went to the company, and I got a hundred of these, and they're in the front row. If you're unfamiliar with this, this is a little booklet called Millions Missing. When millions of people suddenly vanish from all over the earth, this explains what just happened. And you can put somebody's name on it, like Dear John, I care for you, I love you. This is a great little booklet. In since the church has paid for this. You can take them. They're up here. I'm asking you to take one per family. But basically, it tells somebody that's left behind what's going to happen in the tribulation, what's going to happen step by step, how they have to avoid the mark. This comes from a, a writer who was a good friend with John Walvoord. Many of you guys know Dallas Seminary during its heyday. Very, very solid Bible guy. And so I highly recommend you take one and you put it in a rapture box. So you just give it to somebody and say, look, You know, if someday you hear all these people have disappeared and they're all gone, you know, because a lot of people know, right? Because I told you my unbelieving friend on Facebook is making fun of it. Unbelievers know this is coming and they're making fun of it. You give it to them and you say, listen, this is what you got to do. Or you write your own note or you put your own Bible, you put a different book in that. But just let's try to get people ready. But mostly let's be ready. Now, all of that. Is make starts with you making sure you're born again. And I hope that all of you are. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you've put so much in your word. You have some things that are difficult as Peter references Paul's teaching. But God, it's very clear you are coming again. And it's very clear that there's going to be a rapture. We sure hope we've got it right. we tried to put this all together about the timing. I pray, Lord, that our people understand this view comes from a grammatical, historical approach, which in a prayer is indicating God, we just want people to understand this is not something we're trying to put a chart together and just force upon the text, that the Bible has clarity regarding what's going to happen and when it's going to happen, and just like the Bible has clarity that Jesus is the only way. I pray, Father, that all of us are clear, And recognize with much knowledge comes much responsibility. And I pray that we're using our time wisely, remembering that the days are always short and that this pressure of of not knowing when you're coming is something, ironically, that you wanted the church to know for the last 2,000 years. And so who are we to complain if we say, well, this is 2020 and it hasn't happened. But this is what it's clear. God wants the church to live with this urgency. He wants his bride living pure. And I pray when we look at other passages like Ephesians 5 or 1 Corinthians 11 that we recognize our responsibility as the bride of Christ to be faithful to the head of our church, our our husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.